Welcome to If Then, the show about how technology is changing our lives and our future. I'm April Glazer. And I'm Will Oremus. Welcome to If Then. We're coming to you from Slate and Future Tense, a partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. We are recording this on the morning of Thursday, April 12th, and this is our second show this week. We will be discussing our key takeaways from Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg's two days and about 10 hours of questioning from the House and Senate. What did we learn? What didn't we learn? And what does it mean for the future of Facebook and online advertising? We'll talk about some of the positives, negatives, and what's left to decipher. And we'll end our show with a Facebook-free, Zuckerberg-free edition of Don't Close My Tabs. Okay, so Will, quite a long week, but we're not done yet. How's it going? It's going all right. I, you know, I've got a cold. I'm, I'm pretty exhausted. I know you've been pulling all-nighters covering the, the Zuckerberg testimony. How about you? Yeah, it, it's 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 been good. I'm sorry to hear that you you've got a cold. Great timing on that, but uh, it has been a real pivotal moment for our beats because you know Facebook is one of the most powerful companies in the world, and we're not just talking about Facebook when we're talking about the future of regulatory action against this company. We're talking about the future of regulating the whole industry, which has been unregulated for so long, or relatively unregulated, I should say, for so long. So uh, a lot to talk about this week. Glad we're doing two shows. Mark Zuckerberg sat through two hearings, uh, which lasted something like 10 hours in total, right? I mean, it was pretty brutal, wasn't it, Will? It was, and we watched all 10 hours, I think, both of us. <laughs> yeah, I, I took some breaks, to be honest. But I kind you did of not take to. breaks. You, you took breaks to file like 10 stories. Oh, gosh. No, you too. It was only breaking to, to write, but then uh, getting right back on it. He was invited to talk about what happened in the aftermath of the Cambridge Analytica mess, where we learned last month that the political consulting firm that did the social media targeting for the Trump and the Cruz campaigns, as well as the leave side of the Brexit uh, you know, issue in the U.K., They uh, built their voter models with data from profiles of up to 87 million Facebook users, right? And so Cambridge Analytica was kind of the political voter targeting firm that worked for these campaigns. They used Facebook data. That data was wrongfully obtained with the help of Cambridge uh, psychology professor Alexander Kogan, who in 2014 built an app. It was kind of like a Facebook personality quiz called This Is Your Digital Life. Uh, Just to catch people up, back then, Facebook allowed app developers to take a ton of of data off the platform, right? So if you downloaded the app, uh, the developer didn't just get your data, it also actually got the data of all of your friends. So although only 270,000 people downloaded Kogan's app that was made on behalf of Cambridge Analytica, they were able to obtain the data of 87 million people because, you know, you might have 100 or thousands of friends, right? And we, yeah, and we also found out this week, the story broke during the hearings, I think, that uh, Kogan also got access to some Facebook users' private messages. So if you were messaging privately with any of the people who signed up for his app, or at least some of the people who signed up for his app, they may have given Kogan permission to read your private messages to that person. Yeah, this actually came out right before the hearing. So good timing, Facebook. The news cycle ate this up uh, or like didn't 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 get to report on this as much. But uh, that notification uh, about the fact that Cambridge Analytica has, had also swept up private messages. And this is where people are like talking to their loved ones or their crushes or their best friends. Right. This is some private stuff um, that uh, that that. 
a piece of news actually came in just a one sentence little nestled description inside the warning that Facebook sent to people if they had had their data siphoned up by Cambridge Analytica. So this wasn't even like in the form of a a blog post or a press release or anything like that. Uh, This came actually within the warning uh, about, you know, whether or not you were a victim of of that data collection. Yeah. And you can, in fact, now go into Facebook and, and there's a page where you can check whether your data was accessed by Alexander Kogan and then presumably given to Cambridge Analytica. Uh, my data was, in fact, uh, uh, compromised through some some friend of mine, uh, you know, with friends like these. Uh, what, about, <laughs> what, what about yours, April? Whatever. No, mine has not was not collected. Impressive. But I, no, but I'm like a total hermetic <laughs> Facebook user. I am just not good at it. Well, but... you know who's not you know who's not a hermetic Facebook user is Mark Zuckerberg himself, and he disclosed under questioning from Representative Anna Eshu of California yeah. that his own data was compromised in the in the data leak to Cambridge Analytica. Bummer. Well, I guess uh, 87 million people, a few. A few of uh, a few famous people probably got compromised too, including the celebrity CEO of the company. This disclosure about you know who was affected by Cambridge Analytica and who wasn't uh, came after Facebook made some changes, tightening how developers that use its platform are able to access data. There, uh, there are, are all kinds of little tweaks that Facebook has made to tighten uh, how data leaves the platform. Data brokers are no longer able to to partner with Facebook in the same way they used to. Data brokers, by the way, are the, the folks that collect data about all kinds of personal behavior online and then sell that to advertisers for targeting. But let's go ahead and get into what happened at the hearings, because, you know, in that 10 hours of of grueling questioning, we did learn some things. Uh, Anything in particular that that stuck out for you in terms of, you know, what what you learned or what was a big takeaway? One big takeaway for me was that Mark Zuckerberg is either shockingly ignorant about how Facebook's own <laughs> ad advertising products work, which is actually possible. I'm not saying that totally it's sarcastically. Company. It's a yeah. big company. They do a lot. And, and I've heard from a lot of sources inside the company that Zuckerberg actually has a sort of distaste or disinterest for the workings of its ad policies. <sighs> That's still hard to defend but, when you're sitting like, there in fair. front of Congress. <laughs> Like, I don't even know uh, everything that's in my backpack right now. So (laughs) I understand maybe not knowing what's going on at your 20,000 plus person company, but that's no excuse. (laughs) Right. So fair point. So maybe Zuckerberg actually is ignorant of how they work, or maybe he just really didn't want to talk about it. But I do think one big takeaway from the hearing was that even Zuckerberg is not able to clearly explain in front of Congress how exactly Facebook's privacy policies work. And we have this clip, I think, from from Congressman Ben Lujan of New Mexico. Should we go ahead and play that? It may surprise you that we've not talked about this a lot today. Um, You've said everyone controls their data, but you're collecting data on people that are not even Facebook users that have never signed a consent, a privacy agreement, and you're collecting their data. And it may surprise you that on Facebook's page, when you go to, I don't have a Facebook account and would like to request all my personal data stored by Facebook, It takes you to a form that says, go to your Facebook page, and then on your account settings, you can download your data. So you're directing people that don't have access, don't don't even have a Facebook page to have to sign up for a page to release their data. We've got to fix that. So what the representative was referring to is the fact that Facebook collects data on people who are not Facebook users and actually makes these kinds of shadow profiles on people who are not Facebook users 
It's interesting because you would think that if you decided not to sign up for an account on Facebook, then that's a surefire way of not getting swept up in their dragnet corporate data collection. Not the case. Uh, Mark Zuckerberg says that the reason why they do this is because they run another advertising network off Facebook, and so they use that data. Uh, And also, for security reasons, they want to know in case somebody is scraping data off Facebook's public profiles, uh, they can know who it is because they have a shadow profile on them. I just found the whole thing really disturbing because throughout the conversations over the past two days, Zuckerberg repeatedly said, you own your data. And it seems kind of hard to to square that if they're collecting data on you and you're not even a member of Facebook. Then the representative said, if you decide uh to delete your data, as Zuckerberg repeatedly said, you can delete your data if you want. Uh, you have to sign up for Facebook to do that. It's, it's you know, Kafka-esque, right? There's no getting out of this, it seems. Yeah, you had, a, you had a good story on that about how Zuckerberg's repeated line that you own your data, you control your data, was really undermined by this sort of data collection on people who aren't even Facebook users. What I found striking there was that Congressman Luhan seemed to know how Facebook worked better than Zuckerberg did. And that was not the only point in that questioning where that turned out to be the case. Congressman Lujan also, when he began that line of questioning, he asked Zuckerberg, are you familiar with the term shadow profiles? And Zuckerberg said, no, I'm, I'm not familiar with that term. I mean, come on, this has been this has been in the news <laughs> for years. I've, I've been Dude. reporting on it since 2013, <laughs> and Zuckerberg has never heard of it. I mean, I, I get that it's not a term they use internally, but that, was, that made my list. I actually had a list today in slate of the five least plausible answers that Mark Zuckerberg gave to Congress, and and that was up there. Right. You know, he did say, I don't know, to a lot of things. What was another thing that he claimed ignorance on that you felt a little hard to believe? Well, one easy one is one that you pointed out on the first day of the hearings, which is another case where he said he's not familiar with what Palantir does. Palantir is the big data analysis firm that does a lot of national security work. Uh, Basically, you know, what you might consider a 21st century version of digital spying. And its co-founder was Peter Thiel, who was one of Zuckerberg's early investors, a Zuckerberg mentor. He's on the board of Facebook. And Palantir, literally their headquarters is in the building in Palo Alto on University Avenue that Facebook used to be headquartered in. And Zuckerberg is saying, oh, I don't I don't really know about Palantir. I don't know. I don't know what they do. The other thing about Palantir to remember is that they are actually caught up in the Cambridge Analytica mess, too. Right. And in March, whistleblower Christopher Wiley, uh, who who talked to The New York Times and The Guardian when uh, those first two stunning stories did come out, testified to the UK Parliament hearing that Palantir employees worked with Cambridge Analytica to turn that wrongfully obtained Facebook data into models for its voter ad targeting, right? And then the New York Times reported that one of Palantir's employees did, in fact, do this. Palantir said that, yes, that the employee was working in a personal capacity. The thing is that Thiel is on Facebook's board, and Palantir does similar work to what Cambridge Analytica does in many ways in that it can take large amounts of data and make that useful for firms, right? And Senator Cantwell, uh, Maria Cantwell, who did the questioning on this, basically said that she finds it a little hard to believe, you know, given that Thiel's presence is on the board, that uh, Facebook wasn't aware that its data was being 
misused by political operatives, right? Like she even called uh, Palantir Stanford Analytica, kind of in an allusion to to the work that Palantir has done with the university or the connections that it has to that university. Um, what were some other things, though, that really stood out to you as, uh, as, as things that were perhaps disingenuous coming from Zuckerberg? You know, I, I actually found it extremely frustrating, the format of the hearings, because you had on the first day had 44 questioners uh, in the Senate. On the second day, I don't know exactly how many there, there were in the House, but each one only got four minutes. And so Zuckerberg very quickly learned that any time he was presented with a question he didn't want to answer, he could just sort of stall. He would like seize on any little misunderstanding or misconception in the lawmaker's question. And there were certainly plenty of those on the part of, mm-hmm. of our, our nation's uh, legislators uh, to quibble over technicalities. He could plead ignorance. He could do all sorts of things to run out the clock and avoid having to answer the tough questions. Right. And, you know, that 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 note about his his spin game is important uh, to, to speak on at the end of the Senate hearing on Tuesday. Mark Zuckerberg seems to have accidentally, it's hard to say what his intentions were there, but left his folder open with his notes long enough for a journalist to snap a picture of it. And that was useful for me because they kind of revealed his talking points. I wrote a piece kind of breaking them down. Uh, in terms of, you know, where he was spinning Congress and and, and where he wasn't. And uh, a lot of spin happened here. There was one section that stuck out to me on diversity. And this is a question that came up more in the House side of the hearings. Surprise. <laughs> Let's actually cut to a clip of Representative George Butterfield from North Carolina asking Zuckerberg on this question. 2017, you've increased your black representation from 2 to 3%. While this is a small increase, uh, it's better than none. And this does not nearly meet the definition of building a racially diverse community. Uh, CEO leadership, and I've found this to be absolutely true, CEO leadership on issues of diversity is the only way that the technology industry will change. So will you commit, sir, uh, to uh, convene, personally convene, a meeting of CEOs in, in your sectors? Many of them, them, all of them perhaps are your friends. And to do this very quickly, to develop a strategy to increase racial diversity in the technology industry. Congressman, I think that that's a good idea and we should follow up on it. From the conversations that I have with my uh, fellow leaders in the tech industry, I I know that this is something that we all understand that the whole industry is behind on and Facebook is certainly a big part of that issue. And we care about this not just from the justice angle, but because we know that having diverse viewpoints is what will help us serve our community better, which is ultimately what we're here to do. And I think we know that the industry is behind on this and want to. We've talked with you uh, over the years about this. That clip was interesting because it was Zuckerberg using one of the talking points that he left out on Tuesday that we were able to see. And there you'll notice that he shifted the conversation about Facebook's diversity problem to a conversation about the tech industry's diversity problem. Right. And in one of the talking points that were left out under the the header of diversity, and this is a note for Zuckerberg, kind of a cheat sheet that he had on him for the hearings, Silicon Valley has a problem, and Facebook is part of that problem. You know, I thought that uh, was pretty interesting because Facebook 
is a huge part of that problem. And uh, and and Facebook is what Mark Zuckerberg is responsible for. He immediately kind of off offloads the issue and and broadens it to an industry wide problem as as opposed to talking about what he's accountable for. You know, Facebook's diversity numbers, as he said in his talking points, three percent African American, five percent Hispanic. Um, but those numbers cover the entire company. They're much lower if you look at the technical roles and the leadership roles of the company. You know, they dropped to two percent and one percent in different cases. So I, I just found that to be a, a level of spin there. Yeah. And it's also, I think, a bigger problem for Facebook than it might be for some other types of Silicon Valley companies. I mean, if you're if you're maintaining in- internet infrastructure, that's one thing. Uh, diversity is still important for all kinds of reasons. But if you're Facebook, your job is, is literally to mediate the interactions between people of all kinds around the world. And if that's being done by a bunch of 20 and 30 something white and Asian males, that's that's a, a really serious problem. And, and it, it, I think it is pretty inexcusable that Facebook hasn't made more progress on that to this point. Right. You know, a, a lot of the leadership and the at the company and the people who are building the products at the company just don't have a diverse perspective. They have a limited perspective. And, you know, we are seeing a lot of problems. And whereas Facebook is not serving its incredibly diverse community well or, or keeping them safe. So now we're actually going to take a question from one of our listeners. Thank you so much for listening and submitting your questions. And just a reminder to folks, if you do have a question for us on the show or a suggestion for things you'd like us to cover, drop us a line if at Slate.com. This question comes from Slate Plus member Chris from our Slate Plus Facebook page. He asked, do you think there will be actually any action on either the government or Facebook's end regarding privacy? Great question. Kind of the penultimate question here. Will, thoughts? I think they're actually... I think there actually will. I mean, I, I found the, the hearings frustrating in a lot of ways. And as, as a fact-finding exercise, I think they were pretty badly constructed and Zuckerberg gamed the system pretty well to avoid disclosing anything. But we sort of knew he would do that. I think one of my one of my surprises was that Congress people on both sides of the aisle seemed genuinely interested in some kind of privacy regulation. I mean, you were even hearing Republicans saying, look, I hate to pass regulations. I don't want to I don't want to constrain innovation, but it really seems like something's wrong here. It just doesn't seem right to me that you guys can treat your users' data in this way. In fact, can we roll a clip here? One of my favorite moments of the whole week was when Senator Dick Durbin of Illinois asked Mark Zuckerberg a really awkward question that I think got to the heart of, of the whole issue. Would you be comfortable sharing with us the name of the hotel you stayed in last night? Um... <laughs> Uh, no. If you've messaged anybody this week, would you share with us the names of the people you've messaged? Uh, Senator, no, I would probably not choose to do that publicly here. I think that may be what this is all about. Wow, that is a telling clip. What did that tell you about the propensity to regulate the company, though? Well, Durbin is a Democrat, I should note, but it told me that that members of Congress just really feel there is something fundamentally wrong here, even if they had trouble putting their finger on exactly what it was because of, of maybe a limited understanding of how Facebook works. I, I think we really did see some some motivation um, just in a broad-based way to do something to protect people's privacy better than we're doing today. What did you think? I spoke to a number of members from the House of Representatives on Monday in advance of the hearings this week, including Republican representatives. One note really stuck out to me from Representative Buddy Carter, a Republican from Georgia. He told me, and he did uh, question Zuckerberg on Wednesday, he said, 
the message to him, meaning Zuckerberg, is going to be quite simple. If you don't fix this, we're going to fix it for you. And I don't think he wants this. Personally, I don't want to have to do that. The less government, the better government in my mind. But at the same time, this is very, very serious. And I want to make sure he understands that. So, you know, this is somebody who actually believes in less government saying he thinks Facebook has just gotten out of control. There was another clip I want to play uh, also from a Republican, Marsha Blackburn, who uh, questioned Zuckerberg on Wednesday, also seeming to be hinting at the fact that she's not close to the to the idea of posing some sort of governmental constraint on this company. So I've got to ask you, I think what we're getting to here is who owns the virtual you? Who owns your presence online? And I'd like for you to comment, who do you think owns an individual's presence online? Who owns their virtual you? Is it you or is it them? Congresswoman, I believe that everyone owns their own content online. And that's the first line of our terms of service, if you read it, says that. There we have another Republican in the House questioning Zuckerberg and him providing a PR answer that the first line of our terms of service uh, says that you own your content online. Blackburn was not satisfied with that answer. And as we talked about earlier, it's hard to say that you really do own your content online because, you know, Facebook is collecting data that you might not even be aware of. And then if you're not aware of it, then how are you supposed to own it? It's just a very, very bizarre scenario. But my point here is that uh, members of Congress on both sides of the aisle are not happy at Facebook right now. This is a rare moment. Another person who I spoke to on Monday, also a Republican from Pennsylvania, Representative Ryan Costello, said that he thinks that it's time for the Federal Trade Commission, uh, which is kind of the privacy watchdog here in the United States, to, to beef up its regulatory powers here over Facebook. So not necessarily calling for new legislation, but calling for more regulatory oversight, which is just not a theme that I hear very often coming from Republicans, you know, really calling for more regulation here. One thing that did come up a lot, though, were questions about what's happening in the EU right now. They did pass comprehensive privacy legislation. They are ahead of the U.S. on this. This was a conversation that was uh, happening throughout both days of hearings. Any thoughts on that, Will? I was actually surprised by the fact that even Republicans were talking favorably about the EU's very intensive privacy law. I mean, this is not you don't often hear uh, uh, Republicans in Congress saying, oh, Europe's doing doing a better job than us. But I think we kind of did that get that sense. And it encouraged me that privacy legislation might be something that actually does come out of these hearings. But one thing I did not see was a lot of talk about Facebook as a monopoly. There was there were one or two questioners who got into that. Uh, Senator Lindsey Graham of South Carolina started down that path when he said, who are your biggest competitors? <laughs> and he said, Do you, you know, is, is Facebook a monopoly? And Zuckerberg said, well, it doesn't, doesn't feel like a monopoly to me. But the fact is that, Zuck, that Facebook owns three of the top eight social apps, including you know, Facebook itself, which right. is by far the largest. One of his talking points you know, on the sheet that we got to see a glimpse of on Tuesday was, well, there are actually eight apps that people go to to message their friends and family. But Facebook owns Messenger, Facebook, WhatsApp, Instagram, if he's counting that. <laughs> uh, there are eight apps. How many of them does Facebook own? Also, when it comes to the, to the monopoly question, another point that we could debunk because we saw his cheat sheet or that he was going to make the point rather that Facebook is just a small part of the ad market. Advertisers have choices, too. It's a $650 billion market. We only have 6%. 
Okay, it's a point, but Facebook made up about 20% of U.S. online ad revenue in 2017, right? Google accounted for 39% that year. That's according to the digital research firm eMarketer. Together, those two companies make up something like 60% of online ad revenue in the U.S. in 2017. So it really depends on what information you're pulling there. One thing on the EU privacy laws I want to mention is that uh, Mark Zuckerberg did say things like, you know, Facebook provides control over the data that it's that's used, right, that they've done this for a while, that um, that Facebook is moving to to get more consent and things like that. You know, and, and, and he said this in light of the EU laws. His statements generally carried the suggestion that Facebook doesn't need American regulations because they're going to be complying with European ones. And I thought that was really interesting PR spin, kind of implicit in uh, a lot of the conversations about GDPR. He kept saying like, oh, yes, we're going to be doing this. And he seemed to be saying that there's no need to double regulate on us in a way. So uh, just another observation there. Yeah. And so I was definitely disappointed that the the issue of the monopoly or, or duopoly, if you will, in the ad market didn't come up more in these hearings. It really seems to me that that if Congress does anything, it will probably be around privacy, maybe less enthusiasm for any kind of antitrust action. That said, there is a little part of me that is skeptical that Congress will really do anything of substance. Uh, you and others have pointed out that many of these same lawmakers get campaign donations from Facebook. And we heard a lot of people on both sides of the aisle, but especially on the Republican side, uh, talking about how we had to rely on Facebook to make these changes. And we, we had to really hope that Facebook would get its own act in order. We've been trying to hope that Facebook would get its own act in order for years now. And and it should be clear by now that it's not going to happen. The, 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 we need privacy legislation. We need the government to step in and do its job here and not expect Facebook to protect everybody's privacy voluntarily. That's what that's my opinion. One point on Congress members feeling somewhat indebted to Facebook, Representative Greg Walden, a Republican from Oregon who was kind of emceeing the House Energy and Commerce Committee hearing with Zuckerberg this week. He actually uh, resides over a district that gave Facebook tax breaks to build a data center. We had two different uh, members of the House who own Facebook stock, right, who were uh, who, who, who were questioning Zuckerberg. Uh, just for context, that's Representative Kurt Schrader, a Democrat from Oregon. He has about $15,000 invested in Facebook. Uh, We also have Representative Joseph P. Kennedy, a Democrat from Massachusetts, who owns Facebook stock. So uh, and by the way, Kennedy has about 80,000 invested in the company. So, uh, you know, it's definitely a lot of conflicts here. Uh, But yes, you know, we do probably need to see regulation because we have had a lot of broken promises from the company and everything just seems so out of whack right now. It's hard to trust them to do it themselves. That's not just uh, going to take political will from Congress members. They're also going to have to get constituent support from that. And uh, and that's going to require probably some level of campaigning that I'm also not seeing from civil society groups. Uh, We'll be uh, tracking this issue as it develops, though. This is a rare moment where we could see action if people all work together to do that. Yeah, so in the end, the hearings maybe were like one part political theater, one part a masterclass in evasion by Mark Zuckerberg taking advantage of the format, and one part, you know, progress toward a a Congress that thinks it might have a role in, in protecting Americans' privacy. All right. Well, that does it for our discussion this week on Zuckerberg's mini marathon of hearings on Capitol Hill between the House and the Senate. Uh, This story is not over yet, so please continue to listen to our amazing podcast here that you're already listening to as it continues to develop. 
We're going to take a short break and then we'll do Don't Close My Tabs, some of our favorites from the web this week. It's time now for Don't Close My Tabs, the segment at the end of our show where we talk about one of the favorite stories or Twitter threads that we saw on the web this week. April, what was your tab this week? So this was actually a story that came out Thursday today uh, in Bloomberg. It is entitled Tesla Workers Claim Racial Bias and Abuse at Electric Car Factory. It's a very important story because the people who are putting this lawsuit forward were actually contract workers at Tesla, which meant that they were not subject to Tesla's forced arbitration agreement, which has stopped a lot of the civil rights or discrimination cases from moving forward at tech companies traditionally. And this case really could show that there is a path forward, particularly for contract workers, which make up such a large part of the workforce in Silicon Valley, to actually start to see some sort of uh, movement when it comes to these discrimination cases and these bias cases that uh, that are very hard to push forward. Uh, this particular story is just very, very uh, disturbing. The the two people who are involved, a father and son, claimed that uh, that they were called the N-word at Tesla. They claimed that they saw uh, signs that were drawn on the bathroom stalls and uh, on bales of cardboard uh, that had dark-skinned figures with bones in their hair. I mean, just really just horrific, flat-out racist things that they're claiming happened at the factory. And this isn't the first time Tesla has had a discrimination case that it's had to deal with. Uh, there's been sexual discrimination cases, you know, on the factory floor. Uh, I'm really going to be watching this closely, not only because the allegations are just so horrendous and we need to call these out in order for it to change, in order for the culture to change, but also because uh, contract workers make up such a large percentage of Silicon Valley labor. And this might be a way to uh, route around these forced arbitration agreements. If you have a chance to read it, I, I do recommend keeping track of this case. Will, what did you read this week that that caught your eye? All right. Mine is going to have almost nothing to do with technology this Good. was a thread. Uh, this was a thread from Max Fisher on Twitter. Uh, Fisher is has been covering foreign policy for a long time. He's at the New York Times, and it comes off of the fact that CBS Evening News this week ran a segment where the Chiron, the the, the little headline on the screen, was punishing Syria. The picture in the graphic was of Iran. That was uh, obviously a big gaffe on CBS's part. Fisher says on Twitter, as a connoisseur of hilariously wrong TV news maps, that CBS Syria mistake is nothing. Kid stuff. Friends, follow along on a tour of the world, according to cable TV news. He goes through some of his favorite mishaps in TV news graphics and maps from the past several years. You you definitely do. I gotta see this. And I mean, really what that reflects often, it shows our own biases. It shows our, uh, you know, kind of ignorance that is popular amongst Americans. Uh, what were a couple of the ones that stuck out? Uh, let's see. There was CNN uh, talking about looking for Muammar Gaddafi during the Libya intervention. They showed a map that showed the Tripoli that is in Lebanon instead of the Tripoli mm-hmm. that okay. is in Libya. Geography is hard. Uh, there, was, there was one where MSNBC showed a map of Ukraine they went ahead and unilaterally reunited Czechoslovakia. There were a few in that vein where where we got the the old uh, Soviet uh, the the old Soviet bloc states back to their original oh form. 
I cannot wait to scroll through that thread later. It sounds uh, super interesting, informative, entertaining, all those things we love. That does it for our show this week. You can get updates about what's coming up next by following us on Twitter at IfThenPod. You can also email us, and we'd love to hear from you. We want your tech questions, concerns, suggestions, gripes, whatever. We're going to start reading some of your mail on the show soon. You can send us a note at ifthen at slate.com. You can also send a voice memo as well. Use the same address, ifthen at slate.com. You can follow me on April on Twitter as well. I'm at Will Aremus, and April is at April Laser. And if you like the show, help us spread the word. We'd really appreciate it if you left us a comment and review on iTunes or wherever you listen. Yeah, that's absolutely huge for whether people are exposed to our show or not and even get the chance to listen to it. So we really appreciate that when you do it. If Then is a production of Slate and Future Tense, a partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. Our producer is Max Jacobs. Our theme music was composed by Doug Chase. Thanks to Don Aulis at A Room with a VU in Santa Barbara. And thanks to Topher Ruth at Northgate Studios in Berkeley. We'll see y'all next week.